We're going to be picking up on page 36 this evening. But we're also going to begin in John chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, uh, please turn to uh, John 1 and join me there. We're going to read the first four verses. So let me go ahead and pray for us first. Father, we are grateful for our grandparents in the faith who labored to protect and to preserve and to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ, which isn't uh, abstract myths, fables, and fairy tales, but the real God became a real man, lived in a real place at a real time, lived a real life, a real death, a real burial, and a real resurrection, and a real ascension. And down through the ages, there have been assaults to the truth of your word. And so we thank you that it's been protected for us. We thank you that we have access to the history to help us understand old false teachings that are simply repackaged for our day and age. And we live in a day and age where you can find all of these teachings alive and well. But we pray, and we pray knowing that the truth of the gospel will prevail. So Lord, strengthen us tonight, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, then down to verse 14. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, that's the word, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome or conquered the light. If you look at verse 3, we see this text says, all things were made through him. So this word from verse 1 is now a he, and all things were made through him positively. And without him was not anything made that was made. that's, That's interesting language. Without him was not anything made that was made. That's the negative statement of the positive statement that came first. All things were made through him. So this word, all things were made through him, and the negative, anything that was made, was made by him, right? Without him was not anything made that was made. Creation means something is made. It's been created. Now back up to verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. Here is a Trinitarian passage. We see that the Word was both God himself as well as being with God, yet there is only one God. Now the Jehovah's Witness in their New World Translation changed this verse. Does anybody know how verse 1 is changed? Yes, Jennifer. Oh, okay, Jennifer, hold on a second. Can we have two young, two young men to run a mic? Thank you, young man, Porter. 
they say uh, was a God. Correct. That's absolutely correct. So if you look at verse 1, you can see in our Bible, the last statement is, and the word was God. And in the New World Translation, the false translation of the false Jehovah's Witness with a false Jesus, just so you know where we're going with this, they say the word was a God, implying among many gods. We were introduced to last time together that modern-day Jehovah's Witness is simply the ancient heresy of Arianism. I want to show you this. This is from a website. This is from the year 2014. Uh, it's Justin Taylor. He is a good commentator and blogger from December 18th, 2014. And the blog is entitled, How to Use the Back of a Napkin to Prove to a Jehovah's Witness that Jesus is God. And here's the exercise. So this section that you have on the screen, which is super hard to read, is simply a comparison between what our Bible reads and what their false translation reads. Here it says, as Jennifer pointed out, was a God. But if you go down to verse 3, our Bible, here's that positive and negative. All things came into being by him, the word. And apart from him was not anything that came into being that came into being. Their translation says almost identically the same thing. All things came into existence through him. This is the word. And apart from him, not even one thing came into existence. So one of the things that the, um, and Justin Taylor is taking this from an apologist, uh, a guy named uh, Greg Kokel with Stand to Reason, and he's got some good stuff. So you're going to see why this is important. He says you can take a napkin, and on the back of the napkin, you draw a rectangle, put a line through the rectangle so it makes two squares that are touching, and outside of it, it's everything that exists. So everything that exists, God exists, and created things exist. So what you do on the napkin is you write this out. Then in the left side, you write down all things that never came into being. All things, so it's a thing, that never came into being, meaning it's God. Or he is God. And then you ask the person, okay, who goes into that box? And you write God in that box. But then, in the other, on the right side of the box, everything that exists. So these are all the things that came into being. So we have a, everything that exists. There's God who's always existed. And then everything else came into existence because of God. So all things that came into being, well, it's, it's all created things, as we see here. You write that in there. So then you write down, um, you write the words created through Jesus, because John 1.3, again, says all things were created through the word, or through him. And if you're back in John 1, if you go down to verse 14, it says the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Go down to verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one who has ever seen God, the only, or no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So the word that is the he is named Jesus there in verse 17. Okay, so we put down 
That's why we can say all things were created through Jesus. And a Jehovah's Witness would agree with that. An Arian would agree with that. Take a moment to point out to your guest how this illustration is structured. The larger box, again, is everything that exists. What's always existed? God. What came into being? All created things. Now, you can read this article because he gets into a lot of really helpful philosophical uh, laws of non-contradiction and things along those lines. But the question is, the Arian, we saw last week and we're going to see tonight, teaches that Jesus is a created being. He is a lesser God. Jehovah's Witness teach that Jesus is a created being. He is not the eternal second person of the Trinity. So if John 1.3 says all things were created through Jesus, but if Jesus is created, that's a contradiction. If Jesus created all things, but he's created, he would have had to create himself in order to create all things. So this is using their own text. You may have to think about that for a little bit. And that's, that's actually the end of the article. Very helpful article to take a look at. But the idea is that you're using their own false and uh, tarnished translation to show from even in their own Bible. So you don't need to open yours, but if they come knock at the door and want to invite you to the End Times Conference, you can say, can I see your Bible, please? And then you can open up to John 1 and... The word was a God. Okay, that's not true. Don't argue over Greek. And then go to verse 3, and you can just say, can I just draw this for you on a napkin? You're claiming that if Jesus is created, he would have had to create himself to then create all things based on verse 3. I want to ask if that makes sense, but I can't. Ex- that's about as far as I can explain it. Well, they did not have the back of a napkin in the year 300. So that's where we're going to go back to this, this evening. So we're talking about, we're, we're getting set up now. We're considering some history on page 36, middle of our notes. We are thinking about the next rising, most pernicious heresy. So if you back, go back to page 35, you can see at the top of page 35, we're now moving into another great heresy. And of all the heresies that we've seen so far, of all the false teaching, this is, the, this is the false teaching that almost seem to win the day. That's, that's, why, it's, that's why it's so sketchy. So Arianism is going to teach that the gospel plus a created son equals salvation. And that is their false gospel. So to get to Arius, that's the name of this guy who invented this false teaching, we ended last time and are picking up this time on page 36 just considering the historical backdrop that the church faced from roughly the year 250 to the year 312. That's what we're looking at. So pick up in number three on page 36. We we learned last time that there was um, a lot of persecutions, We saw the rise of sainthood. Remember that conversation that we looked at, how um, there were those who had to burn incense to Caesar and declare Kaiser Kurios, Caesar is Lord. 
and there, there were many Christians who denied the faith, churches were split, and then the church was then further thrown into turmoil about what do we do with welcoming Christians back who had denied Jesus. So we're thinking about the history so we can understand the context of the rise of Arianism. So, uh, 36, number two. So Emperor Valerian, he renewed persecution for about seven years, from 253 to 360. But after that, the, the next 44 years were largely peaceful for Christians, but damage was already done. Decius and Valerian, two Roman emperors, had badly shaken the church. So many Christians had committed apostasy to save their lives, and this created lasting splits in churches whether or not they would let Christians back in who wanted to reclaim Christ. They were called lapsed Christians. Diocletian, he was one of the last pagan emperors from 384 to 305. And his wife, Prisca, and daughter, Valeria, were considered Christians. So he tolerated Christians until for some unknown reason, in the year 303, he instigated the most vicious persecution of Christians. Church buildings were destroyed. Scriptures were burned. Worship was prohibited. Um, the army itself was purged of Christians. Bishops were rounded up, imprisoned, tortured, and put to death. That is the year, again, 303. And he reigned until 305. Here's, a, here's one story from that time period. The authorities tried to force a Christian man named Andronicus to sacrifice to the gods, even stuffing into Andronicus' mouth the bread and meat of the sacrificial ritual. Andronicus' response was fierce. May vengeance fall upon you, savage tyrant, you and those who have empowered you to desecrate me with your unholy sacrifices. What you've done to God's servants will one day be revealed to you. So that's a, it's a quote taken from the year 303. Now this is where the tides begin to change. So persecution stops after Diocletian dies. And here we're going to meet a new guy on the scene named Constantine. In the spring of 312, Constantine, son of Constantius Chlorus, advanced across the Alps to dislodge his rival Maxientius from Italy and to capture Rome. It was a daring gamble, and when he came upon his military superior enemy at the Milvian Bridge, just outside the walls of Rome, Constantine turned for help to the God of the Christians. And in a dream, he saw a cross in the sky with the words, In this sign conquer. This convinced Constantine to advance, when, on the 28th of October, 312, he achieved his brilliant victory over the troops of Maxientius, Constantine looked upon his success as proof of the power of Christ and the superiority of the Christian religion. So, for the first 312 years that, that we saw of the church's existence, the church was either tolerated or persecuted in pockets, meaning different regions, or as we saw in these last 50 years, empire-wide persecution. And now for the first time, this guy Constantine, this emperor, claims Christ. We, we learn that Constantine had a dream 
in which the first two Greek letters of the name Christ, Chi and Rho, written as an X and a P to our eyes, appeared on top of the other in the shape of a cross. And the following day, Constantine had the Cairo sign painted on the shields of his troops. And that was actually leading into the Battle of Milvian Bridge. Some historians have considered Constantine's conversion a purely political maneuver. Plenty of paganism remained in him. He conspired, he murdered, he even retained his title Pontiff Maximus, which means that he was the head of the state religious cult. But a purely political conversion is hard to maintain in light of his public and private actions. For example, from the year 312, he favored Christianity openly. He allowed Christian ministers to enjoy the same exemption from taxes as the pagan priests. He abolished execution by crucifixion. He called a halt to the battle of the gladiators as a punishment for crimes. And in 321, he made Sunday a public holiday. And thanks to his generosity, magnificent church buildings arose as evidence of his support of Christianity. Now here's some important details. When Constantine conquered Rome, he did not yet conquer the entire Roman Empire. It was divided in, in sections, basically. And so what he did was um, he moved, in the year 330, he moved the empire from Rome to Byzantium. And then he renamed it after himself, Constantine's city, Constantinople, which is modern-day Istanbul, Turkey. But here is why this is important for us to understand. Constantine did not yet control the whole empire. So he, in 313, with this emperor named Licinius, he made the Edict of Milan. That was in 313. So he conquers in 312. 313, his contemporary in the Eastern Empire, the Edict of Milan was to be a religious toleration pact because Constantine understood himself to be a Christian and therefore reigning on behalf of Christ. Licinius in the East was still persecuting Christians and so Constantine saw himself as, as being a hero of Christians, not, not in a at least as I understand it, any prideful way, but they're persecuting Christians. Let's go rescue Christians. So the Edict of Milan in 313 says religious toleration. But in 320, the Eastern Emperor Licinius once again began brutally persecuting Christians. This led to war in 324, where Constantine viewed himself as fighting a holy war against Licinius, to rescue the Eastern Church from persecution by an anti-Christian tyrant. And Constantine won, and he gained control of the entire empire. So one of the things that happened that we, we've kind of seen a little bit is that as the church grew and survived under persecution, as decades and centuries went on, the East and West became more and more culturally different. And under different emperors, the churches had different relationships with those different um, emperors that were in the different regions. Just a little more details. 
And we're going to turn back to what happens when, when Constantine takes the Eastern Empire. The advantages for the church were real enough, but there was a price to pay. Constantine ruled Christian bishops as he did his civil servants. He demanded unconditional obedience to official pronouncements, even when they interfered with purely church matters. There were also the masses who now, um, meaning groups of people, not Roman Catholic mass. There were now also the groups of people who streamed into the officially favored church. Prior to Constantine's conversion, the church consisted of convinced believers. Now, many came who were politically ambitious, religiously disinterested, and still half-rooted in paganism. This threatened to produce not only shallowness and permeation by pagan superstitions, but also the secularization and misuse of uh, a religion for political purposes. By 380, so that's a big jump ahead, by 380, under Emperor Theodosius, rewards for Christians had now given way to penalties for non-Christians. So by 380, if you did not claim to be a Christian and part of the church, then you were actually penalized by the government. One thing that's mentioned here about how now it became advantageous or just people who believed in many gods. Sure, I believe in a pantheon of gods. So what's the big deal to go worship this, um, this, this Jewish god? Let's go worship him too. If the church had properly exercised the keys of the kingdom through professing adult baptism and regenerate church membership and church discipline, how might have things been different? That's a rhetorical question, but it's something that's worth thinking about. Is now here the masses come in, and then if you have an emperor saying it's illegal not to be a Christian, but if conversion only comes from Christ, think John chapter 3, no one can even see the kingdom of God unless he's first born again, then by creating man-made rules to say you must be a Christian, then you're making non-Christians say that they're Christians for advantageous cultural purposes. So all of this paves the way for perhaps the greatest theological controversy and assault on the gospel, Arianism, named after its founding teacher, Arius. So let's zoom in on this guy. Arius, this is page 38. So you can see when he lived, 256 to 336. And Athanasius, who's a good guy, called Arius the forerunner of Antichrist. So what's going on here? When Constantine, remember, he's going to rescue Christians. <coughs> Excuse me. When Constantine conquered the eastern half of the Roman Empire in 324, he found the eastern church divided by a fierce doctrinal dispute. So there's persecution taking place in the east. Constantine takes his troops and goes east to rescue the Christians. And even though persecution is taking place and then he finally establishes the whole entire empire, there's a theological fight taking place. What's going on? Arius was a presbyter, an elder, in Alexandria, Egypt, under Bishop Alexander. So it's pretty easy to remember. The Bishop of Alexander was the Bishop of Alexandria. Arius 
directed the school of biblical interpretation there in Alexandria. And his theology became popular in the next generation of pupils, of students. Now, here's some words from last time. Arius rejected Sabellian modalism. So, last time we learned that Sabellius was the name of the teacher, and he was simply a guy who said that God is a monad, and that God changes his form, or he changes his hat, he changes his disguise to suit the, the, his uh, suit whatever he needs to do. So God uh, pretends to be the angry old God in the Old Testament, and then he pretends to be gentle Jesus in the Gospels, and then he pretends to be the Holy Spirit in the epistles, and that was wrong. God does not change modes, and that's where we spent time, spent time last week thinking about the Trinity, one God in three persons. Well, Arius agreed with that. Yeah, God does not change modes. But Arius also rejected a different heresy called adoptionism. We didn't talk about this, but here's the one sentence all you need to know. The heresy of adoptionism taught by Paul of Samosota. It's a heretical idea that Jesus was just a really, really good guru. He was just a very holy man super pious, more in tune with the divine than anyone else. And so therefore, this really good man was not the eternally divine son, but that this really holy man was simply God looked down at him and said, you're really good, you're my favorite, I now adopt you, and I'm going to put my spirit on you. So in this sense, it's Jesus is still a created being, but he's not the eternal son of God. And in this sense, he is merely adopted. So this, the heretic Arius, rightly rejected those other two heresies. He said, those are both wrong. The Bible doesn't teach that. But here's how things start. We're jumping back in time. So Constantine conquered in 324. Let's jump back to 318. A sudden chaos overtook Alexandria in 318. A riot broke out and people streamed into the streets chanting, There was when the sun was not. There was when the sun was not. Meanwhile, another large group of Christians stood their ground with the bishop against this movement, insisting Christ is the eternal God along with the Father. Eventually, this teaching, There was when the sun was not, and conflict spilled over the rest of the empire and threatened to break apart the unity of the church. So when it says a riot broke out, these two theological mobs clashed like in a scene from Braveheart in the street. Swords, um, clubs. So this is, this is theological violence breaking out. And notice what the slogan is. It's a slogan that's super catchy. They were chanting, there was when the sun was not. You see what that's saying? It's saying that Jesus is a created being. It's saying that there was a time when Jesus did not exist. 
But so they were chanting this. They were, it was their slogan. It was their, you know, hashtag there was when the sun was not. And this is a quote from Gregory of Nyssa. And he says this in 335. And he's reflecting on the entire Eastern Empire at the time. If you ask for a change, right? You made something and you, need, you bought something, you need some change. If you ask for change, someone philosophizes to you on the begotten and the unbegotten. If you ask for the price of bread, hey, how much does this bread cost? You're told the father is greater and the son is inferior. And if you ask, is the bath ready? Someone answers, the son was created from nothing. So at every level of society, no matter what someone's education was, no matter what someone's work was, this controversy of whether or not Jesus is a created being or whether or not he is the eternal son of God was everywhere. It was all over the news. Everyone was blogging about it. Everywhere they scrolled on Twitter, that's where it was. It was everywhere. If you ask, is the bath ready? Someone answers, the sun was created from nothing. A time came when the Aryan movement became so popular that Alexander, remember he's the bishop of Alexandria, could no longer fight Arius's criticism with mere sermons and correspondences. So Alexander called a synod of bishops, a meeting, to discuss whether Arius' views were orthodox or not. Is Jesus a created being or not? Before they made a decision, though, so, so the meeting is happening in these walls. Look what this says. Before they made a decision, Arius rallied his followers to pour into the streets to add pressure to the leaders. So people circling the building, right, banging on our fancy windows, making all this racket and noise. There was when the sun was not. There was when the sun was not while the bishops are in the room trying to decide whether Arius is a heretic or not. Arius's sympathizers wrote songs to fire up the working class. So they used media. They wrote music, jingles, chants, different things to, to um, put s these complex ideas into minds and to rally everybody. So the mob got caught up in the passion of the slogans and songs. Also, I guess Arius was a charismatic personality. But they did not necessarily grasp the theological issue. They just, it's complex. Isn't that just like an ivory tower theology argument or something along those lines? So in response... Alexander's supporters likewise marched in the streets against Arius, and when the two groups met, a riot broke out. So they're having fist fights and more. So as the controversy spread, started to spread, Alexander assembled a council of Egyptian bishops in 320, which deposed Arius for heresy. Arius, however, was not ready to give up without a fight and went to Palestine canvassing support for other Eastern bishops. 
he had made a ready network. He had a ready-made network of contacts because many of the Middle Eastern clergy many of the Middle Eastern clergy had, like Arius himself, studied under the learned Lucian of Antioch. Thanks, Anita and Scott. So look at what he does. He has a network. He's got buddies. Let's go talk to the Middle Eastern guys. And they had all studied together on this guy named Lucian of Antioch, head of the Antiochian Theological School. You know what? I don't like this seminary. I'm going to go to the other seminary. And this guy had died as a martyr during uh, a persecution in 312. So what Arius did was he wrote to his classmates. He wrote him a letter to the ex-students who are now presbyters or bishops, addressing them as, Dear fellow pupil of Lucian, Lucian's views of Christ seem to have been similar to Arius's. Some historians have called Lucian the father of Arianism. Arius's methods proved very successful in popularizing his cause with the result that church leaders throughout the East became caught up in the dispute. So you see what's happening here? There's, there's, he's just, okay, I'm a heretic. Fine, I'm going to go to the other side of the Mediterranean Sea, rally my buddies together. I'm going to appeal to that we were all in school together under this, this uh, teacher who died as a martyr, and then he began to spread his teaching in the East. So what ended up happening is then this teaching spread all through the Eastern Empire and, and bishops and elders and Christians and slaves begin to take sides either with Arius or with Alexander. Of the bishops who supported Arius, only a few actually understood and believed the doctrine that the Son was a created being. Many found the controversy deeply confusing because in some ways, Arius seemed to be closer than Alexander was to traditional Eastern theology. So there is a guy named Origen. Notice when he lives, about 100 years prior to this, 150 years prior to this-ish. And Origen was considered one of the great Eastern theologians. He had good stuff to say, and he had bad stuff to say. He was a real mixed bag on his, on his theology. So the thing is, the Eastern bishops all had an understanding of the Bible, and they found that Arius seemed closer to Origen in his teaching. What did Origen teach? Origen taught the Son was inferior to the Father, meaning slightly less divine. Alexander was challenging the originist tradition by saying the son was equal with the father. So I'm going to pause here. So I want you to see this. This big time teacher, Origen, 100 years pre previous, was saying the son was inferior to the father, but didn't really explain what that meant. So they took it as he's less God, maybe demigod, semi-god. Whereas Alexander was saying, no, 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 the son was equal with the father in possessing the full divine nature. And Arius said, you can't say the Son was equal with the Father. That you're just saying there's two gods. So 
So on the, uh, on the other hand, Arius himself was now teaching the son was a created being, which was certainly not what Origen had said. Origen did not, he thought the son was inferior to the father, but not a created being. Origen had weird understanding of the Godhead. So, with the slogan, there was when the son was not, and other ones, another slogan, he came to be out of nothing. Arius taught that Jesus Christ was a created divine being, a lesser God to God the Father, but that Jesus was the supreme creation of creation. So God makes Jesus, then Jesus makes all things. So they falsely taught. And so he said that Jesus was separate from and subordinate to the Father. Arius's new teaching against, for example, Tertullian's Trinity from 100 years ago. So this is not the, the church. That guy, Alexander, he ha, he's the orthodox position. Orthodox meaning it's what the Bible taught. It's what they've believed. It's what they've been clarifying ever since. So Arius is merely a new heresy coming on the scene. So it threw the empire into disarray. And it's just important to recognize this. A key reason was assuming, Arius assumed God changed in the incarnation. That's what he assumed. God cannot change. The incarnation means that God changes. Therefore, Jesus is a lesser God. That's what he falsely taught. But another thing, you can see it's complicated. Like you have to sit and like, what are you, what are you saying? That doesn't sound right. Is that right? It seems wrong and you, and you have to think through this. But notice what we've been hearing. Another reason for the success was the media blitz. Songs, slogans. So there's music. There's uh, organizing their own protests in front of City Hall, right? They're doing their own thing. So there was a strong PR campaign that swept through the masses. And so because it was complex, well, I guess we'll just trust our bishop with his false teaching and they get swept up into this entire thing. And so the entire Eastern Empire was embroiled in this controversy. And here's what Arius, here's what his teaching included. Arius reasoned that if the Son were the eternal second person, then God must have undergone some change when God became flesh. And that if God... If Jesus died on the cross for our sins, which he did do, God would have had to suffer on the cross. So he wrongly reasoned. This is his wrong reasoning. He has a wrong starting point. So he says, therefore, Jesus could not have been co-eternal with God or co-equal with God, the Father, since God does not change and God cannot suffer. So let's just move a little bit more forward, a little forward a little bit more, and then we're going to pause. Arius explained the sharpness of his division in reasonable terms. Arius explained the sharpness. For God to implant his substance to some other being however exalted, would imply that God is divisible and subject to change, which is inconceivable. 
Notice that these guys weren't morons back then. I just want to point that out. We just have a tendency to think that because we live in 2023 that we're all intellectually superior to those morons that lived a long time ago. These are sophisticated, complex, very important twistings of the Bible. And remember, fake Jesuses cannot save. False gospels cannot save. So let, let me, uh, you can read this, we can talk about it later, but I want, I want to go to number 11. The Arian controversy, because that's a complex quote of his. Nope, we're going to read it. Moreover, Arius continued the heretic, if any other being were to, were to participate in the divine nature in any valid sense, there would result a duality of di divine beings, whereas the Godhead is by definition unique. What in the world is he saying? So here's what he's saying. According to Arius, if the Father and the Son were of the same essence, it's difficult to see how in the incarnation the Father would not become um, changeable. Arius argued that the Son was created before time. Arius argued that the Son is not co-eternal with the Father. So here's his slogans. Arius said things like this. Before he was begotten or created or appointed or established, he did not exist. For he was not unbegotten. Furthermore, the Son is not of one divine substance. We're getting into some really technical language, so we're going to walk, we're going to come back to these. But so he says this crazy language. He says, whatever this means, we'll come back to it. The Son is not of one divine substance with the Father. He is rather of a similar substance. Same and similar, your salvation depends on those two words. So if you're starting to nod off, come back. Don't let your eyes roll back into your head and glaze over. On this view, the divine qualities of the Son are derivative, meaning that um, God created, the Father created the Son. Arius described Jesus, he is not God truly, but by participation in grace, he too is called God in name only. So think about where we are. Constantine rescues the Christians from persecution in the Eastern Empire, and suddenly he finds that for about the last six years, the entire Eastern Empire is in a theological war, literally mobs in the streets fighting each other. And whether it was a slave who drew the bath for someone else or someone who's making change from the highest to the lowest in the empire, people were arguing whether or not Jesus was begotten or unbegotten from all time. It's a little different from our society today. It tends not to be the things that people talk about or think about or want to argue over. But that was from the slave to the courts of government. So the Arian controversy was the greatest theological controversy in the history of Christianity. It was centered on the most fundamental of all questions, who is Jesus Christ? Is he God in the flesh? Or is Jesus just a created being like you and me, just a lot more spiritual? 
The church had inherited from Israel its passionate belief in one God. It now had to work out how that belief in what God related to the adoring worship it offered to Jesus of Nazareth in its faith, prayers, hymns, and sacraments. And what we've seen so far over these weeks is the question doesn't change. It's still permanently printed in our Bibles, Matthew 16, verse 15, or verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Others say Jeremiah. Others say one of the prophets. But Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so this controversy over this guy Arius is what does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? So the central question was how to define Jesus' special status using the Bible, Son of God, Word, Logos, and one with the Father. If we say that Gnosticism gave us a clear monotheism rather than many gods and demigods and the good doctrine of creation, and if Marcionism gave us the New Testament canon, we may say that Arianism gave us orthodoxy or at least Trinitarianism. So I'm going to pause there. That's a, that's a lot. But I wanted you to try to bring us into that historical moment to understand both the political things taking place under Constantine, persecution in the East, theological dispute, excommunication of Arius, fine, he's going to take his bags, take his ball, go home to the East, rallies the troops, spreads the heresy, and that's what Constantine finds. When Constantine gets there and defeats Licinius, the whole empire is embroiled in this controversy. So any questions, clarifications, things like that before we keep moving forward? I know that that was a that was a ton. So I have a question. Um, so in the 10th category, I guess, um, Arius is saying that he is not co-eternal with the Father. Yeah. I w I'm curious what his, what he thought Jesus would be in heaven. Would he be at the right hand of God or was that, would that be... Like, he's just in heaven now with, like, everyone else, but, like, slightly higher? Well, I'm not the best Aryan there ever was. <laughs> so, um, I, and, and by the way, I keep saying Aryan, A-R-I-A-N, not A-R-Y-A-N, the Nazi race they were trying to establish. Just let's, should have clarified that sooner. So, when I say Aryanism, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, they would have no problem with the idea because Jesus is, Jesus is the Son of God, but not as the eternal second person the Trinity made flesh. He is just the guru of gurus. And so therefore, for him to sit at God's right hand, yeah, it makes total sense because he's just the first of creation. And so um, I am pretty sure a Jehovah's Witness would say something along those lines. Yeah, good question, Avery. 
Um, this one's a little off topic from what we've been talking about, but is Okay, if I shoot you down before you ask it, we'll just, I'll, we could address it later, but welcome. Great. Go ahead. Um, is this split between East and West of the Roman Empire, which I assume kind of then becomes the Holy Roman Empire, is this where we get like Roman Catholic versus Eastern Orthodox? Is it that split? Yeah, that, that's, that split was a slow fracture from the beginning. But scholars will, will say that around the year 1000, just for the sake of ease, the patriarch in the East and the bishop in the, or the pope in the West mutually excommunicated from each other from the church, and that was the formal, it's called the schism from Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism. But that's not going to happen for about 700 more years. Yeah, but they, they, they fought each other all the time anyways. Good question. Any, any other questions, clarifications, crazy language, pronunciation of names, things like that? This is all build up to getting to the Nicene Creed. And I think this is a very important build up. And so I want you to understand where it came from. So let's, let's now get into, we're going to zoom in a little bit to talk about the Council of Nicaea, May 20th, 325, near present day Iznik. I'm not entirely sure how to say it, Turkey, about 50 miles southeast from, from Istanbul today. It's on the eastern bank of Lake Iznik. And just so you know, the Council of Nicaea is actually two councils. The first one was in 325. The second one was in 381. So when we talk about the Council of Nicaea, when you see the Nicene Creed in our church bulletin uh, every four or five weeks or so, we're reading the one from 381. That's the one that gets confessed. Even though the first council described orthodoxy, the Arian heresy still ripped through the Eastern Empire for over 50 years. So they needed to actually get together and in 381 for a second council. And, and you'll see what this means. But I want to set this up for you. I said it a moment ago, but did you know, kind of saying this tongue in cheek, your salvation depends on the letter I. The smallest letter in the Greek is what your salvation depends upon. Now, your salvation depends upon Jesus Christ. But look at what this theological battle is. They fought over a Greek word. So you get to learn some Greek tonight. The letter I to us is the difference between eternal life and eternal death. The letter I is... Iota or Iota. And it's this letter I that the Council of Nicaea fought against. Everything that we've talked about is over the letter I. And so the Council of Nicaea fought against the letter I, Iota. They fought over an Iota and protected us by writing the Nicene Creed. 
So I is the iota in Greek. Can you spot the difference? Look at this word. I'm highlighting. And look at this word. One of these things is not the same. Do you see the difference? The difference is the letter I. Italicized and bolded right there for you in the middle. This is Arian's position. Homoousios. And this is salvation. Homoousios. All right, guys, thanks for coming. What in the world are these guys fighting about in Greek? Homoi, homoousios, means similar. Homoi means similar. So he's saying it's, a, it's two words. Homoi and then, well, down here. Usius. So if it's the if the I is there, the I means similar. If you remove the I, Hama, it means same. One letter. Exact same word, just take out the I, and you're saying that Arian said, no, Jesus is a similar substance, similar essence, similar nature as the Father. Jesus is not one with the Father, but he's similar with the Father. This is the heresy of Arianism. Homoousios means same. Same substance, same essence, same nature. In other words, Jesus is one with the Father. Orthodox, biblical Christianity. Similar, same. And everything that we've talked about was why even the slogans were so powerful. Because they're chanting these Greek words to each other that sound so unbelievably similar that if your ears aren't trained, it's hard to know which one's being said. But they mean very different things. In fact, they mean eternally different things. Because if Jesus is not the eternal Son of God, then He cannot be Savior of us. He cannot be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He would just be another so-called good man who was a charlatan. So when Constantine conquered the eastern half of the empire, in part to rescue fellow Christians from persecution, he found the church bitterly divided and confused over Arianism. It's amazing to consider that a complex theological dispute over Christology led to societal instability, division, and even violence necessitating political intervention. And it's also important to note that this was very Eastern. The Western Empire was solidly Trinitarian. This wasn't an issue for them. It wasn't really impacting them in the West. This was mainly Istanbul, think modern-day Turkey, Greece, across the water, things along those lines. But I just, it's interesting to think, again, this, like, this complex theological dispute was both social and political. You can think about the, just all the protests we've had marched down this street and all the things going on in our cultural moment about what's causing both socio-political strife and turmoil. Back then, it was one thing. Who is Jesus? 
Constantine recognized that the explosive issue had to be diffused. So in 325, he called for a council to meet in Nicaea. I want you to picture this. Just, just pause for a second. Think about this. Just a few years previous, six years or so, maybe a little bit more than that, we had the extreme persecutions taking place. And now suddenly everything has changed. Listen to this description. What a vivid picture that first imperial synod made. Most of the 300 or so bishops had fresh memories of the days of persecution. Many could show the scars of suffering in prison. One had lost an eye during the persecution. Another had lost the use of his hands under torture. But the days of suffering seemed over now. The bishops did not set out for Nicaea secretly, as they used to do, fearing arrest. They did not painfully walk the long miles as they once did. Now they rode in comfort to the council. All expenses paid the guests of the emperor. I mean, just think about what a 300-year change the Lord providentially allowed to take place. And notice also, Constantine sees this, and he's probably thinking politically, can't have a divided empire, so we need to get this figured out. So he calls this council in Nicaea and invites these 300 bishops. So here's a description. This is a description written by the church historian during that era, Eusebius of Caesarea. Listen to how he describes what he saw. I think it's what he saw. What he heard. When the whole assembly was seated with proper dignity, silence fell on all before the emperor arrived. First, three members of his family entered in order of rank, and the others came in, heralding his own approach. These were not the soldiers or guards who usually accompanied Caesar, but friends in the faith. Then everyone stood up as the sign was given that the emperor was about to enter, and at last he himself made his way through the midst of the assembly, looking like some heavenly angel of God, covered in a garment which glittered as if it were radiant with light, reflecting the glow of his purple robe, adorned with brilliant splendor of gold and precious stones. When he reached the upper ends of the seat, seats, he remained standing at first, and when a servant had brought a low chair wrought of gold for him, he did not sit down until the bishops signaled him to do so, and then the whole assembly sat down. So that's, if we were there, that's what it would look like. And after much debate, drafting and redrafting, this council of 300 bishops produced what's called the Nicene Creed. And we're going to see eventually, evidently, um, using the Apostles' Creed as the skeletal structure. And if you just look at the last two pages of your notes, I know it's taking a while to get here. The history is important. But this is something that you can look over. If you look at these last two pages of your notes, pages 48 and 49, you see two um, different charts. The one on the left, if you look at the top, it's going to show you the Nicene Creed from 325 and the Nicene Creed from 381. And we're going to go through this in depth. I just want you to see this. If you go to page 49, you'll see the Apostles' Creed, which we looked at a few weeks ago, compared to the Nicene Creed. And just see the skeletal structure that gave rise to the Nicene Creed. So you can look at that, um, enjoy it, and we'll, we'll come back to it. Let's just get through this first part, and I'll pause to take some questions. 
the council not only made the creed, but they also added a series of anathemas to the creed. Anathema means eternally cursed. And it was to them a stronger act even than excommunicating someone. So here's, here's what they said. The Council of Nicaea, after writing the creed, produced the following anathemas. These are curses against Arians. And when I say it's a curse, I do not mean in a witchcraft sense that you can cause misfortune to fall on somebody. It's just basically saying that if you believe this, it's almost as if you're beyond the pale of salvation from their perspective in 325. Here's what they wrote. Here's the, here's the anathemas. As for those who say there was a time when he, the Logos, was not, and he was not before he was created, and he was created out of nothing or out of another essence or thing, and the Son of God is created or changeable, or can alter, the holy, universal, and apostolic church anathematizes those who say such things. So they give a positive statement in the creed, and just to make sure that we're, you understand what we're saying, here's also the anathemas to make clear that what we're speaking against. And these are all Arius's slogans. Well, Arius refused to sign the creed. He was banished into exile. From this point on, church history is often referred to as the anti-Nicene. It does not mean against Nicene. It means after. After Nicaea. The next 50 years or so following the creed were extremely theologically tumultuous. As you can imagine, at the popular level, the guy drawing the bath, the bishop in that faraway town, not to mention church leadership level, everyone's theology did not suddenly change at the snap of a creed. Mix into this equation political alliances, pagan emperors, and the period was a powder keg of conflict and exile. As such, we need to explore a bit more of the history to get to the final creed in 381. What's going on is different governors, different emperors, different various levels of leadership would rise, and sometimes Arianism was alive and well, and you would have a some of the emperors were Arian. Some of the governors were Arian. Or some governors didn't care about religion, but had um, political financial gains from bishops in the town to support Arianism and to then exile the Orthodox creed believers. So there's politics was mixed and married into this period for the next 50 years of excommunicating the Orthodox, excommunicating the heretics, and back and forth and all in between. So it was just it was just, it was basically chaos. Here's a letter from Constantine. I don't, know if you, I don't know how much Constantine you've read before. Here you get to read some Constantine. This is, uh, he wrote this right after, he wrote this to the church in Alexandria. And notice why this is important. So remember where they were. Constantine is in the east. He's in Turkey. He's by Istanbul, right? Constantinople. Remember where this all began? Alexandria, Egypt, with Alexander the bishop, who was defending orthodoxy at the time. By this point, I, I, he, Alexander may have died at this point. He was, he was an older man. But listen to Constantine's letter. 
To attain this goal instructed by God, I assembled at the city of Nicaea most of the bishops with whom I undertook to investigate the truth, rejoicing greatly to be your fellow servant with them. Accordingly, all points which seemed to raise doubts or excuses for discord, we discussed and examined accurately. May the divine majesty forgive the dreadful horror of the blasphemies which some were shamelessly uttering about our Savior, who is our life and hope. It's Constantine talking. Declaring and acknowledging that they believe things contrary to the divinely inspired scriptures and the holy faith. More than 300 bishops, distinguished by their moderation and insight, were united in confirming one in the same faith, which is in accurate harmony with the truth revealed in God's decrees. Arius alone, deceived by the subtlety of the devil, was discovered to be the propagator of this mischief with unholy purposes, first among you Alexandrians, then among others too. Let us, therefore... Accept the judgment which the Almighty has presented to us. Let us be reunited with our beloved brothers, from whom this shameless servant of Satan has separated us. Let us go with all zeal to the common body of Christ, to which we all belong. Your insight, faith, and sincerity will prompt you to return to the divine favor now that the error of Arius, the enemy of truth, has been refuted. The decision which has commended itself to the judgment of 300 bishops must surely be the judgment of God. For the Holy Spirit, dwelling in the minds of men so full of integrity and dignity, has powerfully enlightened them concerning God's will. So, let no one hesitate or linger, but let all ardently return to the clear path of truth, so that when I arrive among you, which will be as soon as possible... I may join you in rendering thanks to God who sees all things for having revealed the pure faith and restored to you the love for which you have prayed. Love, Constantine. So I want to I pause there because uh, it would, in one hand, make sense to see the creed that they wrote, but there's about 50 or so more years that really important arguments and developments take place. So I just want to pause. A any more questions or comments up to this point as we're just really taking this historical movie tour of what things were like? Yes, Julie. So reading that, um, hearing that, it's he, he appears to be, seems like he was a Christian, but of all the other things, the other writings, and what we know about him, what do you think? What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know. Um, he, he, uh, he may be more disfavored than he should be. But I am not a Constantine scholar. I have not read very much. This is as much Constantine as I've, as I've actually read, too. <laughs> So my guess is as, as good as yours. So it's, we don't really, no one really knows. It's, he's, he's kind of a mystery. I think so. Okay. I mean, this is, this is a pretty good letter. Yeah. So yeah. But here's what we do know. God in his sovereign providence chose to rescue his church from persecution and to allow the church to no longer be persecuted and to even bring about, he used Constantine as an instrument 
to secure orthodoxy, not create orthodoxy. The church is not inventing anything. It is simply re-saying what it said all along, having to address new heresies that have always been in the Bible. Um, but it's just interesting to think that God used this guy. Now, we know in the Old Testament, God used pagan kings. Mm-hmm. So he could be doing the same thing here. God does what is right in his own eyes. Mm-hmm. Praise God. But I'm not sure. Good question. As long as I have the mic. Oh, keep going. <laughs> Uh-oh. I, in, in my mind, it's, it's really murky when you're talking about East and West. And, and so East Turkey, but could you kind of define that a little bit more as to where that line is? Yeah, East is that way. <laughs> and West is that way. Is that helpful? No. <laughs> I'm sorry. Joey told me to say that. Um, you're welcome. If you can picture Italy, if you have a Bible, you can open up to the back of your study Bible and see all the maps, and that will kind of help you. That's probably better. We're taking a little, bit, a little time to bring something up right now, but to, to bring up a map between the east and the west. But basically, you can consider Rome, consider Italy, the boot in the Mediterranean, stomp on the water, as uh, the center of the west. So then when you move east from the west... You start moving along the Mediterranean Sea, and when you start getting into um, Greece in that area, you look in the back of your Bible. I'm just going to start making stuff up. It's a good question, though. I even thought about it, Taylor. I should bring up a map and have it here because we're talking about all this stuff. Yeah, those, bi- those are the not expensive Bibles. Any other questions? No. Yes, Craig. The two schools, Alexandria and Antioch. Yeah. What was their, the nature of the relationship to one another? Good question. They usually changed with every new bishop. So sometimes there was theological disputes such as this. This soured the relationship. And, and um, as we see time develop and get into the later creeds, we're going to see that there's very sharp divisions between those two centers of Eastern Orthodoxy, so to speak. Is that, is that kind of... Yeah, I... <laughs> um, they did not go on picnics with each other. Yeah, that's the nature that I perceive, that they were somewhat in conflict with one another. They, they were competing with one another. Yeah, and sometimes you could have, sometimes it was theological competition. A lot of times it was political competition. And also a lot of times those were mixed together. And sometimes it was rival for who was the superior religious center, who had the better teachers and library and all those different things. They, they, whatever you could fight about, they fought about. Is it true that the um, early Roman method of interpreting the Bible allegorically came from Alexander? I think it came from Origen. Origen had a fourfold interpretation of Scripture. Who was from Alexander? You're probably right. Yeah. Was he? I think so. Craig is right. Yes. 
Maybe. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> I think so. I agree with Craig. Not a question. Um, and I don't know I'm 100% right, but I think, I think if you study a little bit, the, the, the Rome was more genteel in providing leadership. The other two that you were talking about, the East, were always in conflict with each other. I, I think I'm right. Over, and, and like what you said, it could be, it could be uh, political, it could be what, whatever. But I think that's right. Yeah, so the, there were there so Jerusalem, Antioch, Alexandria, Egypt, and Rome. Those four locations were the four seats. So the bishops who were in those areas in the east were called patriarchs and, and pope in Rome. And early in those first, especially when the church was being persecuted, those first few centuries, they understood that they were brothers and sisters in Christ for the most part. But you have radically different cultures, you've got different languages for the most part, and you also have different understandings of theology. The guy in Rome always thought that he was the best, and so he was the first among equals among those other three centers. And they were kind of always vying for, well, no, 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 um, Paul came here. Well, no, John went there. No, uh, Peter died there, and, and for who was best? Yeah, it was, they were still... Um, some of them weren't saved, some were saved, but they were still men in the middle of their sanctification and had sin in their life too. So it wasn't, they weren't singing kubaya. Yes, Rachel. Oh, you have a mic. Her. Um, I feel like my question might be a little more simple. Um, but with the different heretics and areas specifically, what is their motivation? Like, are they... Does he really believe in this theology, or is it just like a political or like a power grab move? Yes. So what's interesting is I don't want to create sympathy for heretics, but I'm going to create sympathy for heretics. So, so Arius really believed what he was selling. He thought he was right. The problem was... He became a heretic once he was confronted with the truth and said, no, my way is the right way and you all are wrong. And, and then it's, it's when someone's confronted with the truth, then you see, I mean, it's a, probably a mixed bag. I'm sure it's pride. There could have been power, politics, all those, all those things in there. But if you read through the New Testament, right, we know that there's false teachers, false prophets, false brothers. Uh, wolves, there's lying spirits, Satan masquerading as an angel of light. So we have this taxonomy of people who are actually claiming to be Christians and in the church, but they're, they're false. And they could be a false teacher, prophet, apostle, or brother, or wolf. And a good question, so if you read Corinthians, it talks about how Satan can take people captive to do his will. So some of these heretics, I suspect based on that, were well-intended and being led by Satan to get our doctrine of Jesus off by one hair's breadth and to make it so confusing that your head spins to get us into a false Jesus. And so they may not know they're a heretic. Arius was exiled and he kind of goes off the scene eventually. 
but he um, very likely, like many of the other heretics, died thinking, I'm right and they're all wrong. And he died as an unbeliever outside the faith because he had a different Jesus with a different gospel and a different salvation. That was a really good question. So it's kind of sympathetic for these guys, which is, which is important for us as a church body to always be on guard with teaching. We've talked about gospel matters, church matters, and conscience matters. When you get into those gospel matters, we have strong, broad shoulders to stand on through the centuries of people who've had to fight questions and controversies that we haven't even thought about to clarify our doctrine of Christ. And I know it seems that it gets really technical, and part of the technicality is they have weird names in weird places using weird words from our perspective. But it's really important because everything is just regurgitated and repackaged today differently. So it's good for us to know what it was then to be able to spot it now when you drive through Sedona. <laughs> yes, Anita. Um, so you're pointing out false teaching in the, in the Bible and false teachers in the Bible, and they were teaching this. And Peter would have been a false teacher, but he repented. Like, Arian didn't, but Peter did. Right, so Galatians, Peter gets swept away with the Galatian heresy, which was the very first thing that we looked at, the Judaizers, who said that salvation was gospel plus something I do equals salvation. And at that point, it was, you must be circumcised to be saved. So Peter gets swept up in it. And so the difference between Peter, and thank God for Peter, because it means that when we all, because none of us has perfect theology, so wherever I have theological errors, um, when we find better understandings of Scripture, so when Paul confronted Peter, you are a hypocrite, and Peter repented, that's what unhereticked him, if that makes sense. And so that's a key thing for us to recognize is that people can get swept away into false teaching for whatever reason, but when we're confronted with the truth, it might take a minute to wrestle through it, and by a minute I mean like a while, but um, once someone says, you've told me that what you think is the truth, but I deny it, no, there's no trinity, then I'm a heretic. I was just going to mention John MacArthur too, because he, it wasn't Arianism, but it was something else, something about Jesus wasn't the son until he was incarnated or something like that. And something like that. I don't know. I don't know what it was. But he also repented of, of MacArthur, did. MacArthur publicly repented of believing. He, he believed that Jesus had always been, that he was always part of the Trinity. So it wasn't Arianism. But it was like that Jesus didn't submit himself to the Father as a son oh. until he was incarnated or something like that. So I, I've never heard that, don't know anything about that, but you might be talking about a current Trinitarian controversy called the eternal subordination of the Son. But are, you don't know, I don't know, so, but that's a really interesting thought. What else? Any, any other questions? We just have a, a few minutes left, so there's, don't want to go too much further. And open season for, for any questions. The other Craig. In the Craig row. Which Craig? This, you, you guys are going to start running the mics pretty soon. <laughs> um, the question just popped in my mind as we're talking about these different things. 
is in Matthew 18. The object of Matthew 18 is to try to restore the brethren. Was there an attempt to restore Arius? Or did they just say, you're, you're out of here? So, um, um, yes, and with a little bit more explanation. The yes is the years leading up to that, because Arius was a teacher under Alexander, mm-hmm. who was just in the stream of orthodoxy. And so as Arius was teaching his stuff, then Alexander and him would... Now, did they ever sit down at Starbucks and try to get things figured out? I don't know. Uh, but what they did do was there was counter-teaching, counter-messages. So it was kind of a, a public... It became an increasingly public dispute. So in those senses, Arius had times to repent, but didn't. And what I... I don't think I included it in the notes, but when... When the 300 bishops signed off on the Creed of Nicaea, and then when they wrote those anathemas, there were two other Arian teachers there who recanted or repented of their position and signed the Nicene Creed, but Arius refused. And because Arius refused, essentially, the final step of Matthew 18 happened, and he was exiled, literally, get out of Dodge, and, and he went and left. We're going to be introduced to a guy named Athanasius uh, next time. And Athanasius, I think he was exiled eight times, seven times, total of 17 years, not counting the six times mobs broke into the city to go kill him. But he is the stalwart defender of Orthodox faith for these next 50 years. Because even though the creed was passed, everyone, a lot of people rejected it. And so he went a um, Arian city governors, for example, came to power, they would exile him from Alexandria, but we'll, we'll get there. But yeah, so, so Matthew 18 happened uh, at a large scale. Good, very good question. What else? Any other questions about Hamousius, Hamousius? So uh, tonight and probably next time are going to be a little bit less interactive because I'm giving you this history, so more monologue on my part. Um, you have the notes. You can read ahead so to come prepared with some, some questions. I just, I have, I've given you my notes that I'm, I'm going from, as you know. But we're going to start getting to some complex Greek. And so I would encourage you to read ahead because it, your head's going to spin, but stay with it and, and kind of read it a few times because it's a really important distinction that as you understand this, it's actually going to help clarify who God is, and I think increase your worship and your appreciation for the mystery of our one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I'm going to go ahead and close this in prayer, and then I'll, I'll hang out here and, uh, until youth group's over and answer any questions or anything that you guys have. Let's, let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the church. We thank you for the truth. Jesus, you said in John 14, 6, you're the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through you, but it matters knowing who you are. And the enemy of our souls has done everything in his power to sow all kinds of wrong seeds in the soil of the hearts of humanity to sprout up false teachings and more to get us away from you. I thank you, Lord, that we can have a granite-like confidence 
in our understanding of your word because we are not um, inventing truths. We're mining the truth from your word, checking it with our grandparents in the past and declaring it in the present. So Lord, strengthen our faith, build your church, magnify Jesus, send your spirit to accomplish your purposes, which we pray is the lost being saved and your church built. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.